Good morning, church. Happy New Year still yet. So glad you guys are here. Youth, thanks for hanging out with us again today. And to those of us joining online, thank you for joining us. We're continuing in this Revelation series, and I'm so excited uh, to bring uh, the word here this morning. But man, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just um, want to just ask you, God, right now, Father, that this, um, this passage, this word would not just be um, more words read, Lord, that it wouldn't just be more things we try to understand, but God, that there would be a deep spiritual impact, God, that you would come and you would open our spirits, open our ears so that we would hear what you're saying to us here at No Hope Kailua today. And so, God, I just thank you for this book, this beautiful book of Revelation, that you have revealed yourself to humanity in ways that we cannot see. And God, I pray that this would become our reality as we walk further into your kingdom. So Jesus, we thank you for being here and being present with us as a church here this morning. We pray, God, that we wouldn't take your word lightly, that we would allow it to change our hearts. And Father, that we would recognize that you're doing continual work, growing us, stretching us, and pushing us more into your image. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. 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 So today we are jumping right into Revelation 2, and it's been such a powerful thing for me going through this book, too, because it's such a good refresher. And I found myself reading these letters to the churches, feeling like I'm reading a diary. Has anyone snuck and read like your sister's diary or something like that growing up? It's small kind personal. You know what I mean? And so you kind of, there's like a sacredness to the text of there's, we're actually entering into people's lives and what they're struggling with, and we're getting glimpses of that. And so there's something that we kind of resonate with. We like to kind of think of Scripture objectively, but there's something deeply personal here that I think God really wants us to grab, because even though they're personal letters, they're written for a public declaration, public revelation. Um, and so I want to show you this quick um, chart, because I think for the next couple of weeks, we're talking about these seven churches of Revelation. This is how the book starts. Um, Pastor Rick started with Ephesus last week, and he goes into six more churches that have, of these seven churches. They're all different letters to different churches, but they all follow the same format. So here's the format. All of them start with an address to an angel to each church. So it says, to the angel of Smyrna, to the angel of Thyatira. There's debate on this. Some people think he, he's actually writing it to an angel who are like guardian angel messengers over these churches. There's other people who think that literally angel just kind of means messenger, so the leaders, the pastors of these churches, it could be that as well. So it starts with that. Then Christ does something really interesting. I want you to pay attention to this because when he opens these letters, he uniquely identifies himself with each church. He says, it's coming from me, Jesus, who is blank, and he'll define himself very uniquely in the context of, so those churches can receive it well. Then he commands what the church, or sorry, commends what the church thrives. He says, you guys are doing a great job at this. Then he rebukes what the church struggles with at the same time. And then he challenges, and there's some exceptions in there. And then he challenges each church to grow and change. There's an exhortation, like, I need you guys to do this to be victorious. And then he promises that for victory for all those who stick to what he's asked us to do. And so we'll see these formats are going to be the same for the next couple of weeks, but it's cool because it makes it really easy to understand. Jesus is very clear, very direct with these letters. So the question is this, too, is well, why is this structure important? And it's important because you see the flow. Jesus could have just written letters to the churches and been like, I just love you guys. You're so sweet. Okay, I love you. Bye. You know, that's not... Jesus is actually trying to move the churches. He's trying to grow them, stretch them, get them to deeply understand who he is in a deeper way. And so there's movement here happening, and I want this to kind of be the banner over these churches is the exhortation that it finishes with, the promises that they finish with are meant to draw our spirits to, to do more, to be more, to change more. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like in these two churches. I thought of it like this. And, and, and Pastor Rick, just to echo him, he did a, uh, explained it really well last, last week, where it's not that every time we go through a church that, okay, this, is, this message is just for this church. This message is just for this church. If you ever had, like, taught in a classroom, what happens, especially with young kids, we do this all the time as teachers. If someone does something great, you call them out and you be like, you did a great job helping out. And everybody's like, wow, great job. You give them public praise so everybody can see, oh, that's what good behavior looks like. You know what I mean? And then the discipline happens the same way. 
We don't shame kids for bad behavior, but what we do is say, hey, that wasn't nice, Johnny, what you did to Sally. And everybody can see, oh, shoot, that's not what we're supposed to do in the classroom. Does that make sense? So these are very specific calling out one church, but everybody's meant to hear them so we all can grow and see what the Father wants out of us. Amen? So that's where we're moving. Here's a map, too, because a lot of these churches are very, like, ethereal until we recognize the real places in real life. And Pastor Rick and Pastor Martha have ventured to many of these cities, and so they'll have pictures of, like, the old temples and stuff, which are beautiful. But notice, last week we started Ephesus. That was the first church. Then it moves up to Smyrna, then Pergamus, uh, or Pergamum, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's the order. So we're moving clockwise. We're starting at Ephesus. We're going north. And I think the, the author, John, was intentional about addressing these churches in a unified way. It's like, it's like he's going through them <laughs> one at a time in a clockwise pattern. So let's jump right in. We're in Revelation 2, and we're starting with the church at Smyrna. So he opens the letter this way. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead and is now alive. Okay, why would he open himself up in this way? That's a very unique introduction for Jesus to say, it's from me who was once dead and now is alive. The history here, quick history, is Smyrna, which is now modern-day Izmir in Turkey, was demolished about seven centuries earlier than this letter. And it was left in ruins for a couple centuries until Rome came and rebuilt it. So this was a city that was literally dead and came back to life. So to be a citizen of Smyrna is to know your history, like I'm a part of this person who's part of a rebuilding of a city that was dead. So the resurrection mentality made sense to the people in Smyrna. Also, Smyrna was also called the first city of Asia. It wasn't the biggest, it wasn't the grandest. Ephesus was more of the hub, but Smyrna liked to claim that they were there longer than any other city. So for Jesus to say, I am the first and the last. So say, don't, you're, you are a great city, but remember, I was there before you. <laughs> I was there before you guys have even existed. I am from the one who was the first and the last, who was dead, but now is alive. So this is how he's addressing these people. He jumps into this. He says this, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich, have you ever been, like, really hurt before, and someone just says, ah, you're fine, get up, get over it? You know what I mean? Sometimes we read this, like, ah, I see your poverty, you're fine, you're rich. That's not actually what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, I see your poverty, I see your suffering, I want to let you know there's a deeper reality you're not seeing. You're actually really rich, you just don't know it. So this is what Jesus is trying to convey. There's an unseen reality here. There's a spiritual richness that you carry despite your suffering and poverty here on earth. And I should say this, that suffering and poverty aren't separate. If you lived in that time, the oppression that you got as a Christian wasn't just, sometimes it would, people would just kill you for your faith. Also, they would stop doing business with you. Families would kick you out of the family. Friends would stop talking with you. So literally everything that you depend on for your welfare and well-being in life was diminishing because you're a Christian. And this is somewhat of a foreign concept to us in the West, but it's still happening all over the world, that people have to leave what's their loved ones, they have to leave their families because Christ has called them forward, and they have to make that decision. It's a tough one. So he says this, I know the slander of those opposing you, and they say they are Jews, but they are not, because their, their, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. What is he saying? The Jews were the ones persecuting them in the city. And he's saying, they're saying they're Jews, but they're not actually acting like Jews because Jews would love and appreciate the people of God. They are not. They are throwing you under the bus to Rome. They are tattletailing on you to Rome because you're not calling Caesar God, and you're calling Jesus God. And that was enough to get them killed. So your synagogue belong, their synagogue belongs to Satan. And what does Satan mean? It's, it's the slanderer, the accuser. Have you noticed this? When you slander and accuse someone, you're literally doing what, what Satan does. You're playing his game. Isn't that interesting? Don't slander. <laughs> Don't accuse. That's not what God does. That's what Satan does. Okay, verse 10. Don't be afraid about what you suffer. 
do not be afraid, the most common commandment in the Bible. Don't be afraid about what you suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. And this is kind of a glimpse at Job, right? Who is responsible for my persecution? Is God responsible or is the devil responsible? He's making it very clear. The devil is going to have you thrown into jail to have you tested, to see how much you can actually, how much you actually love me. You suffer, you will suffer for 10 days, and that's kind of an idiom. It just means you will suffer for a short time. Don't worry, it will end. But if you remain faithful, even in facing death, I will give you the crown of life. That's a beautiful exhortation, beautiful promise that he ends with. So I want to point out one important thing. See that top word, I know your suffering. This is God comes out right after Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? He told them, you guys are doing good things, but you've lost your love. He comes out with a very different attitude in this letter to Smyrna, and he's saying, I know it's hard. I see you. I know you. And so there's a part of this letter that we can apply that says, well, God really understands us empathetically. He's a compassionate God. And what's great about that is, have you ever had someone tell you like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're going through, but they really have no idea what you're going through? He's not like that because Jesus literally walked on earth. So he says, I actually know what pain looks like. I know what suffering looks like. I know how death feels. I get it. I've been there. And so this is God saying, and what's great about this too, there's no rebuke in this letter. There's no, but you have failed at this. Because when people are suffering, God's intentionality with them is to say, hey, I love you and I'm with you. The rebuke Does it mean Smyrna wasn't doing anything wrong? No. It means that in that moment, God's heart was more to care for those who are broken, those who are hurting, rather than rebuke them and correct them. So may that be a lesson to us, especially for those of us who love to rebuke and correct, (laughs) to be sensitive to the season people are in. If they're going through a season of pain and suffering, that we're with them just to love them, to affirm them, and make sure that we're rebuking out of the right spirit. So, moving on, verse 11, he says this, anyone who with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit. Who has ears? Whoever has them. (laughs) Do you have ears to hear what God says? This is the invitation for us. Do you actually hear what I'm saying, or is this just another, another encouragement, another thing, oh yeah, God says this. Or do you actually have the words, the ears to be like, oh my gosh, God is talking. I want to take this and make it a part of my reality. This is what he's asking us. Listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. What? What's the promise here? The promise isn't that your pain's going to go away. It's going to be saying when your second death comes, it's not going to affect you. That's not that encouraging. Most of us want to be like, God, make the pain go away. And he's like, no, 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 the pain will probably last for a little while. But when you come to your second death, I've already overcome that. When he talks about a second death, he's saying first death is our death here on earth, but there's a second death when we face judgment, that when we're rebellious and we're wicked and we turn from God, there is going to be a second death, an eternal death. And he says, you've been saved from that. So live without fear that you have that on, here on earth because the first death has no control of your second death. Your first death has no control over your eternity. So God has conquered death, and now we live in that peace, that promise. And he says, you know, when he says, whoever is victorious will not be harmed. What does it mean to be victorious? He means those who are good at enduring, those who aren't going to cave in and let the pressures of this world, when people were bowing to the emperors, when they're bowing to f- foreign and pagan gods, It was easy for Christians to be like, okay, I'll just go to the temple, throw my incense, and walk away, and I'm fine. Christians were being killed because they were like, no, I don't do that. I don't worship gods. And what what this means for us, too, is how well, the big question for us is how well do we stand up against things that we often cave to? There's influences in this world that are trying to sneak in, sneak into our church, sneak into our mindset, the things that aren't of God, and they're trying to blend with our, with our faith. And guess what? This happened in the church at Pergamum, and he addresses it. So we'll move on to the next church. But first, that, first I want to ask this big question. Big question for, 
from Smyrna is this, is who is defining your current situation in the world? Because what God, what Jesus very clearly did was he said, hey, you're suffering. I see it. I see your poverty. I see your suffering. But you don't even have any idea that you're actually rich. Do you get that? That yes, you're poor in spirit, but blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Favored are those who are poor in spirit. Enriched are those who are poor in spirit. So don't let your poverty here on earth dictate how you walk out your eternity. So this is what he's asking. So I want to ask you this. Who is defining your situation on earth? Do you find yourself in troubled times? And do you need God to remind you here this morning, the same way he reminded people in Smyrna, that actually what you see here isn't the true reality? That you have been storing up treasures in heaven. You're loaded. Like you are, you've got every single thing you need in Christ Jesus. So who is defining your current situation? Is it God or is it the world? Because if we compare ourselves with the world, we'll find ourselves in lack all day. There's always somebody who has more. There's always somebody who's doing better. I'm always going to feel less than or without. And when God says, no, trust me, throughout your pain, your suffering, you are rich. We believe that. We trust that. Amen? We believe that is what God is the one who defines the prosperity that we live in here on earth. So number one, lessons from Smyrna, is this. God is extremely empathetic. We have to take that away. God stops. He doesn't just go down the list. You're good at this. You need to work on this. He just stops and says, I see you. I know it hurts. I'm with you. I felt that before too. And I'm going to hold off my rebuke right now because what I want you to know is that I'm here and I'm with you. So he's extremely empathetic. Number two is this, that persecution is still a reality. Again, I think what's interesting about these two letters we're talking about today, Smyrna and Pergamum, is that one of, one of these letters is less and less relevant as time goes on to us, and one of them is more and more relevant as time goes on. And here's what I mean. Most of us have no idea what persecution means. We don't know what it looks like. There are people in the world, though, who do. And I believe that today this letter is more for the church in China. It's for the church in India and Pakistan. It's for the church in Iran. These underground churches that are literally where people are being slaughtered if they profess their faith in Christ. And here's my, my conviction on this too, is we need to recognize that this happens, and it's in our family. These are brothers and sisters across the world, and typically, here's, and this isn't a, a bash on, it, on us as a church, but typically we always do this. Let's pray for those who are in control of us, those who are in our proximity, those who are in our lives. So we pray for our government, we pray for our leaders, we pray for our nation, we pray for us, 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 us. When there are brothers and sisters in Christ we are spending eternity with who are, who are dying. We don't spend enough time interceding for our brothers and sisters around the world. Can you think about it like this? If my kids, my kids are at the stage right now where they scoot and they bike, they fall down all the time. And they cry all the time. I have the whiniest kids. They, I love them. But they're, know what I noticed, though? Whininess is a good thing in kids because it means that they're used to getting love and affection from their parents. So they can demand it. You know what I mean? So it's not a bad thing. But here's the thing. This happens. I'm teaching Jude this right now because Micah will fall off his scooter. And Jude will just kind of stand there and be like, Dad, Dad, Micah fell down. I'm like, Jude, help him up. That's your brother. You know what I mean? But he would kind of like, he's like, no, that's Jude's deal. Dad, you come fix it. I'm just going gonna, gonna to do me. You know what I mean? And if we truly believe that Ohana is everything, we say, that is your brother. You help him up. That is, there's no other thing. There's nothing you can do better in that moment than love your brother or love your sister. And I feel like it's the same way. Like, imagine if, if Jude fell off his bike and Esther's like, oh, Jude, I see that hurts. Well, I'm going to go do my homework, and I'm going to busy myself with the things that are relevant to me rather than stop and do what I can to help my brother. We miss the point. And so I want to pray, like especially for those of us who have been staying for Epule Kako, let's pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are literally being killed. Egyptians who are trying to hold church and the government's just destroying them and burning down churches. This stuff happens all the time. And so I want to just make this clear. Persecution is a reality, and it's in our family. <laughs> if there's something in your family, you want to address it, yeah? And for most of us, we don't know what to do, but we can always pray. And if we can't pray for that, then there's not much else we can do. We just stand and watch them cry, so to speak. So we want to be our brothers and sisters who help them up in the best way we can. So persecution is a reality. We have to remember that this isn't a 
just, oh, if the church was persecuted then, it's now, and the church will continually get more and more persecuted, right? So, just putting that into perspective, and number three is this, is that Christians' hope, our lessons from Smyrna, a Christian's hope is not in the absence of suffering, but the presence of new life. This is what we need to hear all the time, is that your suffering is temporary, Every time someone went through something in Scripture, went through something harsh, God would always tell them, don't worry, there's an end date. It's, it's going to end. Your exile in Babylon, yeah, 70 years, then you'll be fine. You'll be out. Just endure. The exhortation here is to endure. And when we're victorious at enduring without slipping and caving and doing what the world asks us to do, then he says, you made it. Yes, it was painful, but you did it. Good and faithful servant. So that is our... those. That's how we relate to Smyrna here today. It's recognize God's an empathetic God, that he's there for you and he loves you. That persecution does happen, but it's not persecution has the final say in our lives. It's the hope that Christ has overcome death. So this is the reminder in Smyrna. So moving on to Pergamum, because they have a totally different <laughs> reaction. Revelation 2, starting at verse 12, says this. He jumps to a new church. He says, write this to the letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message of the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Wait, that's a bible term. Where have we heard that before? Jump really quick with me to Hebrews, because this will explain a lot. Hebrews says this, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and the marrow. It expresses, exposes, sorry, our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one whom we are accountable. What's the point of a double-edged sword? tears away the ways, the things that have been blended, it can cut right through them. So the things that aren't of God are exposed and separated, and the things that are of God remain. This is the power of the Word of God. And this is the power of the Word of God as we accept it into our hearts, is it tears away our own fibrous tissue where we've blended things that aren't of God with our faith. This is what we see happening in Pergamum. So think about it like this, and sorry if it's a little vivid. But if you've ever hunted or if you've ever skinned an animal, there's this membrane that's right between the muscle tissue and the skin tissue, and you need to have a very sharp knife. And it's a very, it's like microscopically thin, but it's strong. So what you have to do is cut really tenderly between the muscle tissue and the skin tissue if you're going to have a clean cut, if you're going to separate the skin from the meat. And what God wants us to do, what he wants Pergamum to recognize is he is the one who cuts and saves the meat. Make sure you're not bash, slashing up your meat or ruining the skin, but he wants to save what is good and do away with the waste that has attached itself to his word. Amen? And for all of us, here's the thing. We all do this. We all blend our own selfish desires and our own ambitions with what God wants for us. This is the exhortation for all of us. We all do this. And so who's the one who's going to come and, do, and, and clean up the mess that we've blended together? God is. So back to Pergamum. Verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 13, he says this. Uh, oh, sorry, wrong verse. So verse 13, thank you. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in Satan's city. He's called, he has nothing good to say about the city. It is Satan's city. His throne is set up in Pergamum. And here's a quick look at a picture. If you want to see what Pergamum looks like, this is like a, a panoramic view of it. You have the citadel, the fortress at the top. Then you have Trojan's temple. You have the temple to Dionysus. Then you have the amphitheater. Then you have an altar to Zeus, and if you go in a 360 view, there are more temples to more pagan, Roman, and Greek gods all around that city. They are literally in the heat of paganism. And so what, <laughs> this is like the context of Pergamum. And so verse 14, actually before we get there, it says this, this is really interesting. He says, 
you live in a city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. This is the encouragement. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you. Have you ever thought where your faith would be if you think of the greatest spiritual influence of your life? Could be your dad, your mom, could be a pastor, could be someone you watch like a Rick Warren or a Craig Rochelle, someone on TV like a big, huge church pastor. What would happen if they got killed for their faith, like straight up murdered for it? Would that shake you? Would that rock you? What happens if it happened in this church? Like, sorry to be morbid, but we've got we to gotta make this real. What would happen if some random militia group came in here and killed every Stinton? You know what I mean? How would that affect you? Would you still show up here on Sundays? This is what they're going through. Antipas was a leader in the church, and he got killed. And he says, you guys remain faithful even though he got martyred. That's a wild attitude to have as a Christian, is to be like, yeah, he got martyred but I'm still coming. I'm still showing up on Sunday. I'm still doing church. I'm not giving up on this faith thing. You remember the book of James, the opposite thing was happening. James was saying to people who were being persecuted, you guys are leaving your faith because you're scared and you're running for your lives, but you've lost who Christ really is in that running. And so our encouragement here is to endure even the hardest things, even when church feels oppressed or persecuted or whatever, we're still showing up and we're still doing what God's asked us to do. Amen? This is who we are. So, moving on to verse 14. He says this, I have a few complaints against you. Uh Uh-oh, here's where it gets real. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans here, whom among you follow the same kind of teaching. Now, what is he talking about? If you know the story of Balaam, here's the 10-second version. You can read it in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a prophet, and the king of Moab, Balak, saw Israel coming and conquesting and taking all these nations, and the, the nation of Israel was growing. He got scared, so he called Balaam, and he says, I need you to curse Israel. And Balaam was like, I'm not cursing Israel. Like, that's, why would I do that? And people knew that when he cursed somebody, it was in the name of God, and so those curses stuck. And so the king of Moab said, I'll pay you if you curse them. So he said, I don't do anything unless I talk to God first. So he went to God, and God's like, of course you don't curse them. That's my people. Don't do that. So he's like, okay, shoots. He went back to the king. He's like, sorry, God told me I can't do it. And God said this really interesting over and over. He said, Balaam, don't you say anything to the king of Moab that isn't from me, that I didn't tell you first. And this is going to be important. So he told Balaam, don't say anything, do anything unless I tell you to do it because you're my prophet. So long story short, there's this back and forth for a while. Balaam realized I can have it both ways. I can listen to God. I won't curse Israel. But what I'll do is I'll tell the king, hey, here's how we can get Israel to stumble so I can please God and please the king of Moab at the same time. So what he did is he told the king, why don't you send your women in there? They'll fall into sexual immorality, and then they'll curse will come upon themselves. My hands are clean. I get my money from the king. All is good. It is the loophole spirit that Balaam brings to the table. This is what they're talking about. And in Pergamum, he's saying this still exists. There are people who are teaching you, you can compromise your faith, that you can do what you need to do, you can have your own selfish ambition, and you can please God at the same time. And there's no one in this room except the Holy Spirit who could tell you what that looks like in your life. Is there still a spirit of Balaam, a a compromising of my faith to get what I want, whether it's riches whether it's sexual pleasure, I can't tell you the amount. It's, it's staggering to me every time we read statistics about pastors who are addicted to pornography, that church leaders in our country continually struggle with that because they tolerate it. This is what the question, I have complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. You're tolerating things slipping into the church, slipping into your mind that aren't of me. And that's just not, that's not what God has for us. And then he mentions the Nicolaitans, and the real quick story on that is there's not a lot of information, but Nicolaitans are ones who basically believed, I'm free in Christ, and all the sexual immorality laws were broken because Christ fulfilled the law, so I can do whatever I want sexually. And those still exist today. There are people who live like that, that Christ is just the freedom Christ and do whatever you want. 
that every single boundary has been lifted and you can just walk into your own sense of freedom. But the lesson here is that God says, I hate that. Why? Because we muddy the waters of what He's called us to do and the good things He's put in our lives when we blend it and say, eh, it's okay if I do this too. Eh, it's okay if I think this way and I try to blend it with my faith. So I, can, I can make these two thoughts fit together. And this is so prevalent right now. When I said that this letter is more relevant than ever, you had Christians living, trying to worship Roma, trying to worship Zeus and Christ at the same time. This is the spirit of Balaam, right? This is the spirit of Nicolaitans. It's trying to get what you want. It's trying to, it's a, like what I call the loophole spirit. I'm trying to find loopholes where I can get what I need out of Jesus, but I can still kind of do what I want at the same time. It's compromising. And today we have social media. We have politics, right? This is why we spent five weeks on politics before the holidays. It's because we want to be a people who sever that thing when politics bleeds into our faith and it starts impacting the way we see Jesus. We want to cut that. We want to cut that membrane and tear it the way that the, the double-edged sword is supposed to tear it. So we know clearly what is of God and what isn't. That's what the Word does. Amen? And so we need to be those people who are making sure that you aren't living a loophole life, that you aren't tolerating things that are, aren't of God and thinking, ah, it's okay. And we abuse the grace that God has given us. See, freedom is dangerous if it's not in Christ. When we say we have freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean freedom to do what we want. It means freedom to do what God has asked us to do. And that's what gives us freedom. The moment we start walking in our own sense of freedom and trying to put Christ's label on that, oh, I am a Christian and I do this. I'm a Christian and I have sex before I'm marriage. I'm a Christian and I cuss out people when I get angry. Right? All of these things that we do we're really ruining our witness. And that's what we're trying to save. This is what Jesus is trying to tell Pergamum. You are losing your witness. You're losing your light. Your light. Like we read in Revelation 1, your lampstand is the most important thing because I need my somewhere to put my light. I need people to see the hope of Christ somewhere in this world, and you are it. If you look like everybody else, if you're compromising your faith, I got to take that lampstand back. This is what we don't want. We got to be a people who cherish our lampstand. Amen? Who are like, man, God has put a light here. He has hope for us. He has put working miracles through us. We need to be the people who care about our character, who care about our behavior, who care about our attitudes, that don't walk in hypocrisy. And here's the thing. No one's perfect. Grace is always there for us. But if our heart is to be a mediocre Christian and cruise and get both what I want and what God wants, you're going to end in despair. That's how it goes. Think about it this way, too. Your life here on earth is short. If you get 12 years of grade school, I want to graduate grade school as a senior, right? I don't want to spend 12 years in grade school and get stuck in the fourth grade over and over, so I graduate as a fourth grader after 12 years. Wouldn't that be terrible? I believe God can change us and improve us and sanctify us to be more made in His image every single day. And so we need our kupuna to show us what that looks like, because you guys have been sanctified for so much longer than we have, and we see it. We need to see what a sanctified life looks like, people who are walking out with no compromise, and we need that wisdom for us as a younger generation, amen? Like, we need you guys to point us and be like, hey, my mom does this the best. She's like, Ugh. every time she sees the news, we went through this in the 60s. It'll be over soon. Just stick, basically, just stick with Jesus. Apparently, everything happened in the 60s. I, had, I wasn't there, but apparently everything happened. So, nothing is new under the sun. Amen? But here's the, here's the point we want to get at, is freedom is dangerous if it's dangerous if it's not in Christ. So, be careful with the freedom Christ gives you. Stick to His Word. Stick to His ways. The mo and separate. Ask God, God, check my heart Know in which ways I'm slipping, and I'm allowing other things to influence me. Because when that happens, we start unintentionally leaving the Word of God. We start unintentionally leaving the will of God, and we start living in our own way. I've seen that so many times in friends and family who just one little slip at a time, and they're gone. They're like, why was I a Christian to begin with anyway? So many rules, right? 
And this isn't the encouragement. The encouragement is just like, hey, guys, we all need to be like straight tie Christians who make all the rules. We need to people who care about our witness. They care about our advocacy for Christ and re- recognize that our lampstand is a cherished invitation for God to give us in this world. And I want to take care of it. I like shine, you know, like polish and shine that lampstand. I don't want to like make it all dirty and grungy so people are like, oh, what is that? <laughs> That's a Christian? That's not us. That's not the church. We holy. Amen? That's us. We holy. So here's, here's the big question for us. Because what's interesting is this. Ephesus, God said, you guys are great at rebuking your false teachers. You're incredible at it. But you've lost your love. There's no love in it anymore. Then he tells these guys, oh, you guys are terrible at calling out your false teachers. They've, they're in your church, right? They have, he says that they are among you. They haven't left you. These people still worship with you, and nobody's addressing it. He's saying the opposite. You guys are lovely, loving and accepting, but nobody's addressing the elephant in the room that there's false teaching happening. And so the question for us, the big question, is comparing Ephesus and, and Pergamum is this. How do we balance fending off false teaching around us while maintaining our love for God and others. This is what these churches were struggling with. It's like I'm either too loving or I'm too rebuking and I've lost my love. Where's the balance? And I just want to say this is this, is we need to continue to practice rebuke and correction in our church. That's for sure. All of us do. I need correction. Pastor Rick needs correction. All of us need correction. We all need to rebuke when we're, we're wandering. You know what I mean? But here's the thing, is if correction is happening, correction is a prophetic word. In other words, if you're going to correct someone to be more like Christ, it has to be like Balaam, God says, it has to be my words only. It can't be your words. So we have to prophetically say, hey, I see you, and I see the ways you're thinking, and it's actually not of God. And I see the way that you're behaving, and I just want to encourage you, your lampstand's important, your witness is important. We need you, like the kingdom needs you to check your heart on these things. That happens, but here's the thing is, if there's no love in your heart for that person, it's not worth saying at all. Amen? So every time we correct or we rebuke, it comes out of a prophetic love for that person. God is calling out these churches not to be a scolding mean God. He's calling them out because He loves them and He needs them to be a light to this world. So the same applies to us. If you feel like there's someone in your heart, there's someone in your life that you need to correct, right? Parents, if you've got to correct your kids, make sure that you, they know that you love them first. And parents usually do a great job at that anyway. But whatever correction needs to happen, it has to come out of love. If the love isn't there, you're in Ephesian. You're so much good at calling out false teachers, but you're not good at loving people. So we need to balance those two things together. Amen? So, one other scripture came to mind when I was going through this, and it really kind of stood out to me. And... Um, it's in Luke 10. So we'll jump there. Luke 10 says this. You guys know this story. This is back to sort of that loophole spirit. How much love, I want to ask you this question, how much love do you have for God and for others? This is really what the, the big question is. So you guys know this story. Uh, on an occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This is an expert in the law. So he's probably a Pharisee. He's probably a priest. He's probably got some religious background. He's an expert. He knows the law. He said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Classic Jesus, answering a question with a question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's a Shema. And love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said, what? He replied, you've answered correctly. Now go and do this and you will live. But... The conversation wasn't done. I've never noticed this statement until recently, and it really popped out at me. It says this, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who then is my neighbor? Right? So it's like, okay, I get it. I got to love God, and I got to love my neighbors, but technically, who is my neighbor? Clearly, this points out a lot. This religious man, and you guys know how Jesus answers this. He tells him the Good Samaritan. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, who is your neighbor? The one who shows mercy on the one who's hurt. But what's crazy is this man 
didn't like Samaritans, clearly. He was trying to justify not loving Samaritans, and Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So he says, God, technically, do I have to love Samaritans? That's really what he's asking. He's trying to justify his own disdain for them. So I can do all these things, but can I also hate Samaritans at the same time? He was probably racist. Samaritans were a different ethnic background. He could have been a religious elitist who thought they were just better than Samaritans. Could have been either of those. And Jesus tells them this. No, what's crazy about this? Jesus could have told them, okay, here's the story. A Jewish man picks up a Samaritan who's beat up on the side of the road and takes him to the end. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to love Samaritans, the end. He switches the role and says, no, the Jewish man is the one who's hurt. The person you despise is the one who shows you love. So let me show you who a neighbor is. The Samaritan, in the story, the Samaritan is the one who loves better than the Jewish person. That's crazy. And so it makes us step back and be like, oh my gosh. When Jesus asks him at the end of that story, he says, who is the neighbor? He doesn't even say Samaritan. He can't. He's like, the one who showed mercy. Jesus is like, yep, that's right. Go and show mercy. So my question too is, is there a loophole spirit, a Balaam spirit of love in your life? Where I feel like I can attach myself to Christ, but I don't have to love this person. And Jesus covers all bases. He's like, love your neighbor as yourself. If they're your neighbor, you have to love them. Love your enemies. Even if you hate them, you have to love them. Honor your parents. Even if they're family and they irritate you, you have to love them. Jesus covers everything. Who do I have to love? Who's technically my neighbor? Anybody. They have breath in their lungs and a beating heart. That is your neighbor. So I want to ask you this question this morning too because I struggle with this all the time. It's like, God, am I saying I love you so much but also holding on to bitterness towards a person or a group of people or whatever it may be? Because if I'm doing that, and especially during the political season, right, many of us might feel that. It's like, I love you, Jesus, but man, I can't stand it. Right? Yeah, I know you guys feel that. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying that's a Balaam spirit in your church. If you're going to be a people of love who are called to love, you actually got to walk out what that means. There's no more grumbling. There's no more, I hate this person. I can't stand these people. It's being like, hey, I'm for Christ, and I'm going to show them love, whatever that looks like. Amen? So this is, the, this is what we want to avoid. This is what this means to us. So here's the big question. Oh, sorry, we asked the big question. Um, Sorry. Oh, here's our three lessons. Three lessons from, that we learned from Pergamum. Number one is this, is the quality of your faith is tied to how well you represent God. He was mad at them because there were people in their church bringing in idolatry and sexual sin and also calling themselves Christians. So, the wholeness, the healthiness of your witness is a big part of your faith. Sometimes when people say, like, we think like, oh, if I just believe hard enough, my faith is good. No, you can believe as hard as you want. If you're not walking out like Christ, how real is that faith? That's what James would say. If it's not coming out in your actions, is that actually a real faith at all? The quality of your faith is tied to how well you represent God. And I can't explain it enough. Your character matters. Your attitude matters. The way you interact with people in public really matters. Because people are looking for Christ. They're looking for God, and they're finding it in other things when Christians fail at being a good lampstand. Number two is this. All of us are capable of compromising our faith. This isn't to them, ah, look at them, ruining the faith, bringing in all these ideas, the Nicolaitans and the Balaams in our church. It's here. I can do that too. All of us are guilty of doing this. We all blend faith with our own selfish ambitions. So we need to be in prayer and ask God, God, tear this from me. Use your double-edged sword and rip this out of me so I can see clearly what is you and clearly what is not of you. And number three is this. God's acceptance is always more important than the cultures. Pergamum was very great at being like, hey, you believe that? Come on in. We love you. Yeah, that's cool. Sexual morality? Yeah, great. Come in. We love that. But in appeasing the world, sometimes we lose our, our stand, we lose our genuine faith in God. And so we got to make sure that we're pursuing God's acceptance first. Remember, you look like you're in poverty now, but man, I'm storing up this massive wealth for you because you're so amazing. And so what we, the reality we don't see, oftentimes we need to focus on the heavenly, heavenly reality that God has so much in store for us when we're obedient to Him. Amen? 
So we got to remember that. It's so easy to slip into like, oh, everybody's thinking like this. I better think like this too. Everybody's doing this. I got to do this too. It's like just that kind of groupthink mentality. Don't appease what the culture is doing, what the government is doing. Appease only, please only, the one God, who the only person whose acceptance matters. That's the invitation. So if we go back to Revelation uh, 16, we're going to end with this way, and the worship team will come up. Here's the exhortation for Pergamum, and we don't do this very well as a church, I have to admit. He says this, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword in my mouth. What's the, what's the exhortation? How does God want us to stretch and grow if we've been blending our faith with other things? He's saying, look, repent. <laughs> oh, that's not a fun thing to do, repent, right? But here's the promise. If we repent, look what he says in verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious at repenting for these things in your church, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. In other words, you don't need these other thoughts and ideas to be in my kingdom. You don't need to be accepted by these people to be in my kingdom. I give you everything you need. And this manna from heaven, this daily bread, God, it says, I'm going to sustain you every step of the way. Whether it's physical food, whether it's spiritual food, if it's belonging and meaning and purpose, if we're finding that elsewhere, God is saying, come back to me, repent of your ways, and I'm going to give you everything you need. Do you believe that? Because I believe we all have a puka in our heart, and we're all trying to fill it with certain things. And God is saying, come back to me, and I'm going to fill that with only what I can give you. And check this out. He's going to give manna, and he says, I'm going to give each one a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. A white stone represented an invitation to a party. If someone was having a party, they'd hand out stones and they'd stamp your name on it. So that stone only works for you. I can't give my stone to someone else. No one else can take my stone. I can't use that stone and go to a different party. That stone was meant for God's party only. It says God has a banquet, he's ready for you, and he's got a rock, he's got a white stone with your name on it, and only you can cash that in. The question is, will you repent of your ways and be victorious in this way? So here's what I want you to do. As the worship team comes on, can we spend a time of repenting? And this is hard. Like, I even, as a pastor, this is like my least favorite thing to do. But if we aren't real with the things that we're struggling with and the sin that we're wrestling with, we can keep going back to grace and be like, yeah, I can keep doing this. I can keep st stuck in fourth grade because God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. But God's like, I want you to move. There needs to be movement in the church. It's a weird time we're living in and people are looking for hope. Can we be a church that moves past fourth grade and moves more into sanctification and Christ-likeness and so that people can see the light of the world through us? Amen? So here's what I want you to do is bow your heads. And I want you just to ask God, just repent. For some of us, it might be pornography. It's a real sin. And the sexual immorality, the lust that occupies your mind is keeping you from being the shiny lampstand God's called you to be. For others of us, it may be or hatred or bitterness towards somebody. It might be unforgiveness. But if we can repent of those ways, God's going to stir us a new life. Jesus, we just come to you asking for forgiveness. 
God, there are things that have come into our life that we've allowed it, we've tolerated it. It's slipped in, and we don't know how to get rid of it. So we ask you, Lord, to come down with your double-edged sword and call that out of our lives. Cut it out, tear it out cleanly, Lord, so we can see your face clearly. Jesus, I pray for the unforgiveness in this room. Jesus, I ask that you would take what relationships have been broken and you would stir us into be people who pursue reconciliation. So God, let us talk to our spouses, if that's who it is. Let us go talk to those friends. Let's give texts today. Let's give calls today. God, push us to actually pursue this because we know that there's life and there's hope at the end of forgiveness. God, if it's um, our own character that we're dealing with, if we're lazy and unproductive, if we're lustful and envious, if we're insecure and we take what's not ours, and we try to call ourselves Christians even among these things, God, I ask you to bring back honesty to our taxes, honesty to our business practices. I pray, God, that we would be people who are upright in your word, that people see clearly as examples of the light to the world that you've called us to be. And so, Jesus, whatever it is, we repent. We say, God, no more. I pray that you would activate us, God, this week to do more, to be better, to be more like Christ than we ever have before. I pray, God, for a graduation into the next grade level today of sanctification, that we can be more like your image. And God, whatever sins have been keeping us down, keeping us out, and keeping our minds out of your will, I pray, God, that those would be removed and we can step freshly and boldly into that, all you have for us. Thank you, God, for your promises that there is victory. We thank you, Jesus, that repentance leads to revival in our spirits. And Jesus, I pray that you would just continue to stir us to love and to good works. Compel us out of love. Correct us out of love. Jesus, I pray that we would be so ingrained in our relationship with you that all of these things would come into life and that we would see you more vividly ever than, than ever before. So Jesus, yes and amen to all your promises, to being saved from the second death, God, to have eternal life with you, to fill on the manna from heaven that you give us every day, and to really cherish this invitation to the banquet that you've written our names on. God, we just love you. We praise you. Jesus, you're the only name worth living for. God, we just stir up as a church today. Make us a people of love again. God, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.